The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I am delighted today to welcome Penelope Jagasar Schaefer. She is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, children's health advocate, and global environmentalist. She is the first black female director to be nominated for a British Academy Award. She is the creator of Toxic Baby, the first ever interactive documentary app. She has been named one of the top 100 green online influencers. Penelope is Healthy Child, Healthy World's 2010 Mom on a Mission. She had a TED Talk with one of our former Food Sleuth Radio guests, Tyrone Hayes, who spoke about the dangers of pesticides in our environment. Penelope's TED Talk focused on the effects of toxic chemicals on children. It has been viewed over 250,000 times. She blogs about living a less toxic life, writes for international publications, and lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Penelope, welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Melinda. Thank you for having me. I heard you speak at the Women Share meeting in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I was so moved by your message and your mission that I wanted to bring your compassionate voice to our listeners. Tell me, how does a filmmaker become intrigued with the topic of toxins in our environment? Well, I became a mom, and as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners, you know, for many women, you have a life before you even begin to contemplate having children, and then you have a life after you start on that journey. And I think for myself, I was keen to use my filmmaking skills because those were the skills that I had. When I first found out that these toxic chemicals could have the effects that the scientists were telling me that they were having and that they were so widespread and just the sheer quantities of amounts of chemicals, the volume of chemicals in production, I was just astonished that I had never really heard about this. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised because I'm a very literate person, I'm a very well-read person. And so there was a part fascination, but there was certainly a lot of concern as a filmmaker that this was an important issue that I felt wasn't getting its proper airing within a wider public. We were not having a debate about this. It was not part of our wider culture. And, And I set out as a filmmaker to use my skills to try and play a small part in bringing the story to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there are more pollutants in breast milk than cow's milk. Yes. I was very surprised when I spoke to my researchers in the Netherlands, and they told me about this. One of the reasons is that you know cow's milk are a lot, is a lot more regulated as a food substance. Right. And also, the chemicals that are present in a woman's breast milk is really dependent on the life that she has lived her entire life. So it's very hard to know which chemicals a woman would have in one state, which chemicals a woman would have in another state. If she grew up in an agricultural community, you would expect that she would have more of those sorts of chemicals within her breast milk. If she grew up in a near a facility that dealt with wastewater or dumping of plastics, incineration of plastics, she would probably have another set of chemicals. Um, The fact is that the chemicals that we're exposed to aren't regulated at all. 
the chemicals that a cow is exposed to is, I wouldn't necessarily say much more regulated, but the people are certainly more aware of it, and there's a lot more that we can do. The other thing that I wanted to add, which is really important, is I was hugely surprised and concerned and disturbed when my Dutch researchers told me that there are more pollutants in breast milk than there are in cow's milk. And there are several reasons for that. I think, first of all, cows lactate throughout their entire life, whereas a woman will only lactate every time she is pregnant and feeding a child. So every time that you have the ability to express milk from your breast, you're going to dislodge and lose some of the chemical contaminants that are stored in your breast. Because cows are lactating all the time, they're constantly turning over. Anything that comes into their body is going to leave fairly quickly. Women aggregate these chemicals in their bodies and in their breast tissue over the course of their entire life. And then when they start producing milk, the chemicals leave the breast and they come forward and pass as milk to the child that she is feeding. So it's, it's, it's rather complicated, but just I think the idea that cow's milk would have less in it than my own breast milk. I'm currently feeding my daughter, and um, it's very abhorrent to me as a parent to, and as a mother to, to have to go through that process knowing that fact. Mm-hmm. And still, breast milk remains, in my opinion, the world's best milk because it has so many beneficial compounds to protect our children against diseases that we're really in this difficult situation knowing that we're giving our children the very best milk they can possibly have. And yet, along with that milk comes a history of toxic chemical exposure. And one of the things that you mentioned, Penelope, that really moved me was you related our children's health today to World War II chemicals, and you described how this bloated war machine and nerve gas that was used during World War II now comes delivered to us in our food in forms of pesticides. And so our children are really eating the remnants of World War II. Yes, absolutely. Very quickly, I just want to comment on what you said about the breast milk. You're absolutely right. And it's very important to to emphasize that breast milk is by far the best way to feed an infant. And and even the person who was telling me about the contamination of breast milk, all the scientists that discussed this will make that abundantly clear. It's really about cleaning up our breast milk as opposed to not feeding our children with breast milk. But an important thing to add is that we now think that breast milk has the ability with all of the antibodies that it carries to negate a lot of the effects that we see with exposure to, to toxic chemicals. So even children that are breastfed have less of certain disorders than the children who are not breastfed, who would not have been exposed to those contaminants in the breast milk, but they still show up in significant uh, diseases in childhood and later on. Mm-hmm. Um, to talk about the World War II connection, I think that it's very hard for us in the present-day life to really understand the machine of war that was in place for the Second World War, uh, the amount of things that were being invented and, and were using as part of chemical warfare. When the end of the war came, suddenly there was a surplus of all of these things. I mean, these machines, these factories, these professions that were all created to support the war, they now had to think about, well, what is it that we could do? And I think that when we think about how a pesticide has the ability to kill a pest, we don't realize that those pests are killed, not all pesticides, particularly the organophosphate, 
pesticides, which are widely used across the United States. What we don't quite realize is that the neural pathways that those pesticides take to destroy that organism were the same pathways that were developed to destroy human beings. And once the war had ended, it didn't take very long for people to realize that they could translate that technology, that science, um, that molecular magic making into something that could be widely used across all sorts of what would be called pests, all sorts of organisms, and, and would destroy them. And it often seems really weird for me that people don't really think about the fact that we are killing organisms in such huge amounts, and yet somehow we are going to be completely untouched by this. There are some insects and bugs, cockroaches spring to mind, that would survive a nuclear holocaust a lot better than we would. So the idea that we would remain untouched by them, I think is something that people have not really thought about. And I think once you understand that connection with the Second World War, the use of pesticides, and particularly the way that pesticides are used, they're sprayed on the workers who are planting these crops, who are reaping those crops, picking those crops, uh, maintaining those crops. They are often spray directly because it's too much of a hassle. It takes too much time to clear the field so that the crops and the agricultural produce can be sprayed. So, you know, the pesticides not only affect the bugs, they not only affect our food, they not only go onto our food and that we then ingest, but they are also widely sprayed over the people who make eating our food possible. And I think that that is something that is truly immoral. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, something else you brought up that was a real tip-off to you was this concept of epigenetics in that it's not just a single generation that's affected. We're talking about effects lasting three or four generations out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the science of epigenetics is relatively new. And for a long time, we really thought that the genes were the rule makers in all of this. We now really understand that the environment plays a major part, if not the definitive part, in how these genes are switched on and off. And having the ability to to test subsequent generations in animal studies, but we're now seeing the results of longitudinal studies that have been going on for several decades now, and it's showing you know something that is so disturbing, and that is, as you say, when you expose a pregnant mother to certain compounds that have the ability to switch on a gene, that gene doesn't get switched off. So anyone carrying that gene along the genetic line will continue to have that gene switched on. There are many universities and research institutions doing great work in epigenetics. The University of Washington came up with some really interesting work that was seeing significant effects, the same significant effect that they saw in the first generation with the pup the first pup that was born to the original mother that was exposed. We're seeing that same effect three generations later, those pups that would have been the great-grandchildren of the original mother who was exposed. Now, what that says for us as humans is that, you know, we are looking at an exposure that will continue to affect us. And we know that our children are more ill than, than we were. We've seen the rise of chronic disease across the globe. I mean, this is a global problem. But particularly in the U.S., the rates of increases is dramatic, it's staggering, it's shocking, um, it is very much shocking. And so the idea is that if these children are carrying these genes that have been switched on and haven't been switched off, 
what happens to their generation of children and the generation after that. And so there's a a very well-known scientist, Pete Myers, who wrote Our Stolen Future with Theo Colburn. He says in my film, Toxic Baby, he says, you know, whilst this is so depressing and frightening, it should actually give us great hope because if we are switching the genes on, then in theory, if if we remove the chemicals from the environment of the body, then we have the opportunity to see if we can switch those genes off. And these are genes that are implicated for a wide variety of diseases that cost our country huge amounts of money, that cost our our families and our communities huge amounts of pain and suffering and trauma. If we can negate the effects of these diseases by being able to switch off these genes so that these diseases don't manifest, that is very exciting. And I think it's one of the greatest medical breakthroughs, I think, that we would probably ever have as the human race uh, has ever existed. So I think that epigenetics not only can seem quite frightening, but I think it's actually very exciting. And I think it gives us huge amounts of, of hope. And my hope is that it gives us an incentive to put the money and the resource into really looking at this issue, challenging this issue, studying this issue, and making changes with this issue. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Penelope Jagasar Schaefer. She is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, children's health advocate, and global environmentalist. And she is the creator of Toxic Baby, the first ever interactive documentary app. She's also been named one of the top 100 green online influencers, and she is Healthy Child, Healthy World's 2010 Mom on a Mission. And her TED Talk, which I highly recommend, is based on the effects of toxic chemicals on children's health. Well, Penelope, you raised some really interesting points here. One is that we recognize the problem, so therefore we have hope, or we should have hope, that we also have the solutions in our hands. And I loved one of the things that you mentioned in your talk in Wisconsin, which was, we must ask, what are we leaving generations we will never know? And this concept of thinking beyond ourselves, thinking forward seven generations later, is really key. And I think it's unique to women to really be able to do that because of our ability to bear children. And one of the things that you also said was, I'm tired of saying to other moms who maybe have children born with birth defects, oh, I'm so sorry to hear this. And then you become an advocate and you wonder, you know, am I the only crazy mom here, right? We're labeled if we care too much. We're labeled if we speak out. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about bridging this gap between it's difficult to know this information and yet we need to take steps to take action and it's difficult to do so in our culture? Absolutely. I think as women, we have reached a really critical Point in our junction as human beings, as the human race has evolved, the evolution of humans. And to go back to the generational thing, traditionally we would have existed in our communities with our elder women, our younger women. We would all have lived together. So the idea of multiple generations would have felt very real to us. We did everything together as women. And I think part of the reason why, you know, <laughs> I I think that we have to understand that women for a long time have been labeled things 
when they have behaved in a way that perhaps has been seen as uncontrollable. And I think that it's interesting to look back and understand how women have shaped the popular culture of our times. Throughout the history of time, women who have been seen to have advocated for a change, either in the way that that we exist as a society or change for the betterment of society, they always the ones that get labeled crazy. You know, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake for being crazy. You know, I think that there, there are many, many instances that we can see across the annals of time. But I think that the juncture that we find ourselves now as women is incredibly critical. And I think it's probably the most important juncture that we've ever faced as a community of women. We feel the effects of toxic chemical pollution far more fundamentally than any other group within our society, certainly more than men do. And as we think about having children as younger women, as we go forward and have children as slightly older women, as we see our children then have children as uh, grandmothers, we understand the effects because our children's first chemical exposures come from us. We pass toxic chemicals onto our children when we carry them in the womb. So we are poisoning our own children before they're born. And that is the most horrendous thing that you could think about as a mother. And there are so many women who get paralyzed at that thought. But we can't be paralyzed. And this is not the time to be the damsel in distress waiting for someone to come and save us because no one's going to come and save us. We have to save ourselves from this. We are the ones who most of the time will end up having to deal with the children. We, we see our sick children. We tend to our children our friends who have children, even if we ourselves don't have children, we all have that maternal instinct somewhere in us, whether we adopt, whether we never have, but we have godchildren, or as I say, colleagues, friends, relatives, who they themselves have children. We all have the ability to empathize and understand our unique role in this. And I think for a long time, we have been really held back by the idea that if I stick my head above the parapet, I'm going to be labeled crazy, I'm going to be laughed at. I'm going to be mocked. I can say in my own career making this film, professionally and personally, that is exactly what happened to me when I started making this film. And I took the premise of it to the people that I work with on a regular basis, within television, within film. I was told that this didn't, it actually didn't exist, that this was just complete crazy talk. It was made up stuff. And when I showed the scientific studies published in very reputable scientific journals, I was told, well, no mom will want to see anything like this. No mom wants to know anything about this. And of course, we would rather not have to deal with this. I mean, who would voluntarily wish this upon ourselves? And I have to say, Melinda, parenting in the 21st century is so challenging on so many other levels. It's the last thing, quite frankly, that we need right now, whether it's cyberbullying or internet, you know, people preying on our children via right. the internet, the global economic crisis. There's so many challenges that our children face. It's a very, very hard time to be a mother or a parent. But now we have this to deal with. Yes. And we are uniquely placed to deal with it because when you think about the, the figures, you know, global chemical production is set to double every 25 years. So in almost in the, in the, in the space of a generation, chemical production is going to keep doubling. We can't get to a point where it just keeps doing that for every generation. I mean, we all know what it's like to have grown up as younger children and not really 
know people who had that much cancer, that children with cancer or that much asthma or certainly the developmental diseases like autism, now they're everywhere. You don't have to be a scientist to methodically study that, to know that that's happening anecdotally. We all know this. And so I think as women, we play a very important, in fact, the most important role in all of this because Mm -hmm. we have the ability to advocate because we have the ability to empathize and the ability to understand the ramifications for this. We have to advocate not only for our children, but for all the children out there who do not have parents who can advocate for them. Mm -hmm. Children that come from lower income families, children whose parents are disabled, you know, we can only we can look at the, the factory that's just collapsed in Bangladesh and look at those children whose parents will never come home. We can empathize with them. We don't have to be there to feel like, oh, my gosh, this is awful. What can we do to help? So we have that ability to look at everyone's children and consider them as our own. The other really important role that we play in all of this is that, of course, we are the largest consumers. Mothers make 80% on average of all the consumer choice decisions that are made within a household, we're the ones deciding where our money is going to be spent and who we're going to spend our money on. Mm -hmm. So we have a very important role to play in moving the markets in the direction that we want them to go in. But we also have to be aware of the fact that we cannot buy ourselves out of this. You know, a very good example is the BPA-free phenomena. BPA is something that I know that you know a lot about. I know that your listeners have been told about this, I'm sure, on on many occasions. And I'm sure that they also understand that when the Ferrari about BPA came out and and mothers were saying, I'm not going to buy plastic baby bottles that have BPA, suddenly there was a whole wave of industry that came out with what was termed BPA-free plastic baby bottles. And we all sighed a huge sigh of relief and thought, well, we can just get on with our lives, not fully comprehending that the vast majority of those plastic baby bottles that had BPA in them, that had the BPA uh, removed, the chemical that they replaced the BPA with was BPS. Very similar sounding, and in fact, it's a direct cousin of BPA, bisphenol S. So it's kind of shocking when you get to that point, because then that's when you start feeling really, oh my God, well, what's the point? Because, you know, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get anywhere. You know, you try this and then they come along, they bring something else in. With the, in this particular example, the health effects are very similar because, of course, it's the same bisphenol, bisphenol molecules that we're talking about. So what do we do then? Well, we have to dig deep and we have to understand that this is a complex problem. It's not going to get necessarily uh, turned around very quickly. And we have to understand that we have always been advocates for our own change and our own betterment, whether it was the suffragettes at the turn of the last century or it was the women's feminist movement, the women libbers of the 60s and 70s of the 20th century. You know, women have always had to step up and make the changes and advocate for the changes that they wanted to see in, in their whole life. This whole idea of be the change that you want to see in the world, I think, profoundly relates to women. And so whilst it feels uncomfortable, it can even feel scary and unnerving to be the first voice within your community, within your family, within your uh, academic institution, within your medical practice, within your profession, whatever your background might be and whatever 
area in society you find yourselves in. Being the first should not stop us from speaking out. I speak from experience. I know how difficult it is to have people negate what you're saying and to think that what you're saying actually really doesn't make that much sense. It's not widely proven. I think we have to understand that we have to solve this. I knew that from my own perspective. I didn't want to be in a position where my children would ask me in 20 years' time when they were trying to have or they had their own children, Mama, what did you do? What did Mm. you do when all of this came out? I don't want to be in a position to have to say, I didn't do anything. I felt really scared. No one could prove anything to me, so I just didn't do anything about it. I want to be able to say to my children, I did absolutely everything humanly and inhumanly possible to make a better world for you and your children and your children's children who I would I would never ever see because as a mother I fundamentally understand that that is part of my role of being a mother. Oh, that's so I think that this is a really important wake up call that we are facing. We need to deal with this now, not in the next sort of 10, 15 years, not in the next 20 years. We need to start changing the mechanisms now and that starts with us as women stepping forward and vowing to be that change, vowing to to do everything that it that it takes. And in the age of the internet, it's not that much sometimes, mm-hmm. calling our senators and congresspeople and our elective representatives, you know, being smart with our purchasing decisions and talking within our communities to our fellow women and making sure that they understand as well. These are such powerful and important messages to give women. One of the things that I tell women is that never feel like you're alone in this. So you might be the one person in your community that speaks out first or speaks the loudest, but you are not alone. And I want women to know that there is an entire community that feels the same way we do, that feels the same sense of urgency. And I wonder, are there certain websites or organizations that you would direct women to go to for more information and to feel support? Absolutely. That's a very great point that you bring up, Melinda. Uh, Traditionally, as I mentioned earlier, Women would have lived together, they would have communed together, they would have spent their entire lives within the same circle. It can be very isolating when you leave home, you leave your university or your educational institution or wherever you've spent a huge amount of time and you find yourself feeling alone in this new community that you're part of. The Internet has been an incredible resource to link us all together. Two communities spring to mind, online communities and online organizations, One is Healthy Child, Healthy World, which is an amazing resource, not only for scientific information, but for the ability to be able to connect with other moms and and to hear what moms are thinking of. The other one is Moms Rising. Moms Rising has done a lot of work, not just within toxics. Toxics is just one area that they deal with, but it is a very large and important part of the work that they do. Both of those organizations have got great amount of support and are really available for women. They have Facebook pages, which is a great way to sort of plug in directly, or Twitter. Any of their social media is a really good place to link in in a very direct way with that community. And I want to say saferchemicals.org is a very good place to look to, to have an understanding of legislatively what's happening 
Wonderful. Well, Penelope, I want to thank you so much for your work. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And, of course, I want to thank my exquisite guest, Penelope Jagasar Schaefer, for her important work protecting generations today and beyond. Thank you so much for your tireless advocacy. Thank you, Melinda, for having me. I'm hugely honored to have been featured on your show. Thank you.